the French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everybody and welcome to Grey History, episode 15, The October Days. The Great Fear was followed by great achievements. The abolition of privileges and the declaration of the rights of man are some of the key lasting legacies of the French Revolution. But those achievements were followed by bitter constitutional debates. Debates which helped to trigger a terrible revolt. A revolt with even more terrible consequences for the royal family. So without further ado, let's begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 15, The October Days. From the beginning of this revolution, there's been a group in French society who have been... Well, winning. Consistently and considerably winning. I'm not talking about the bourgeoisie or the third estate or even the liberal nobility. The winner I'm talking about has been hiding in plain sight, is often overlooked as a key cause of the revolution, and is in no small part responsible for the success of the victories of the bourgeoisie, the third estate, and even the liberal nobility. So, which victorious group am I talking about? I'm talking about the press, in particular the radical press. At almost every turn so far in this revolution, the radical press has succeeded in achieving its key policy objectives. At almost every fork in the road, the radical press has either carried the day initially or somehow rectified its defeat even after things didn't go to plan. Let's recap right from the start. Cologne's Assembly of Notables became an assembly of rebels in no small part because of the press's uniformed resistance to Cologne's reforms. Once Cologne got the sack, Brienne takes on the Parlements, and it's the press's resolute backing of the obstructionist judges, the so-called defenders of French liberty, which resulted in events like the Day of Tiles and the Vassile Assembly. This guarantees not only Brienne following Cologne into the dustbin of history, but also guarantees the recalling of the French messiah Jacques Necker and the summoning of the Estates General, two actions the government had resisted and two actions the press had demanded. It was the press who had forced Necker to double the Third Estate, and it was the press who relentlessly backed the Third Estate's deputies when they went rogue at the Estates General and formed the National Assembly. Finally, it was the press and radical agitators many of whom were journalists, who were so influential in creating the charged environment necessary to unleash the great Parisian insurrection of mid-July. In short, the press had been winning. They had been Charlie Sheen winning. And when policy disputes did not go its way, such as Necker and the King refusing to allow the Estates General to vote by head before it had convened, well, the radical press eventually got what they were after anyway. 
The authors of radical and progressive publications achieved these policy victories by ceaselessly lobbying the government, and more importantly, the public, until victory was secured. This consistent winning is exactly why the debate over the royal veto wasn't going to go away. When the Assembly voted on the 11th of September to grant the King a suspensive veto, it was a kick in the gut for the radical press. In fact, it was a kick in the gut for almost the entirety of the press, not just the fringe radical publications which were on the rise. While some publications with Catholic and Royalist sympathies had lobbied for the veto, the majority of the printers in Paris were producing material that made the royal veto out to be some sort of superweapon of the counter-revolution. The veto might as well have been the Death Star, the one ring to rule them all, the halo array, Choose your favourite superweapon and that's what the press made the veto out to be. According to the press, the king's veto would reverse the gains of 1789 and enslave France to tyranny once more. Radical writers such as Jean-Paul Morat declared that the veto would make the king the supreme arbiter of the nation. Furthermore, Marat denounced the criminal faction within the Assembly, which was progressing proposals that were The views of the aristocracy covered by the veil of the love of order and the public good. Combined with other radical pamphlets and alongside the more moderate journalists, the press's opposition solidified that of the people's. Deputies complained that the people didn't actually understand why they were opposed to the veto. They just knew that they were. A supporter of the veto, Mirabeau was lobbied by women in tears to prevent the veto from passing the National Assembly. Crying, the women asked what use the National Assembly would be if the king had the veto and lamented that they shall all be slaves. The Couillet de Versailles joked that the common person had such a poor understanding of the veto that peasants would actually believe the king could use his veto to make them pour their soup onto the ground. A joke with extra sting, given the scarceness of food. Having built up the prospect of the royal veto as being akin to delivering some atomic, nuclear, hydrogen bomb-like weapon into the hands of the counter-revolutionaries, the press could hardly just move on from the debate once the decrees passed the National Assembly on September the 11th. Having once warned the veto would be the weapon of the sinister counter-revolution, the press returned to familiar ground. Conspiracy. The radical press warned the people of Paris that a newly empowered counter-revolutionary conspiracy was afoot. For radical publications, the fact that the king was granted the veto in the first place was proof that conspiracy lurked in the shadows and that its plotters had corrupted the National Assembly. Unfortunately for King Louis and the deputies who were sympathetic to the crown, a whole series of events in September and early October would lend legitimacy to these warnings. For the next few weeks, everything seemed to point to a new counter-revolutionary conspiracy, just waiting for its moment to strike. To start with, the assembly itself became visibly corrupted for those who were convinced of treasonous plots. On September the 28th, Meunier, the leader of the English bloc who had championed bicameralism and the absolute veto, became president of the National Assembly. Meunier, of course, had championed the Facile Assembly back in July 1788, in the aftermath of the Day of Tiles revolt in Grenoble. Back then, he was a radical rebel, 
but the centre of the political debate had shifted dramatically in 14 months. Meunier was a constitutional monarchist, but having championed bicameralism and the absolute veto, he was labelled an unashamed ultra-royalist by the Parisian press. As a result, Meunier's rise to the presidency of the National Assembly all but confirmed its takeover by the sinister criminal forces of counter-revolution. Radical writers like Marat called for a purge of the Assembly, and other papers circulating the streets of Paris sung from the same hymn sheet. But the appointment of Meunier as president was not the only clear and visible sign of a rejuvenated counter-revolution. Alongside a confirmed royalist puppet now commanding the Assembly, the king had begun to walk away from his promise to ratify the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Abolition of Privileges. Having stated he would support the documents in return for the suspensive veto, and having already received the suspensive veto, the king decided he was above his gentleman's agreement with Barnev and went rogue. Not only did he manage to go rogue, but he managed to do so in a way that was, well, so characteristically Louis XVI. He went rogue in a manner which flaunted his political tin ear. Citing faults in both documents, by month's end, Louis had yet to promulgate or even accept the decrees. Just to make the public relations battle harder, one of the specific flaws Louis continually highlighted was the fact that German princes would be negatively affected by the abolition of privileges because of lands they held in eastern France. Of course, the best way to appear to be a good French king is to prioritise the needs of a German prince over the needs of a French peasant. I imagine the head of palace PR literally face-palming when they heard the public position the king was taking. The king's stance was a free gift to the popular press, which wanted to depict a king in league with foreign noble conspiracies and against the common man. I mean, could you imagine the reaction of the modern-day press if an immensely popular bill, which directly benefited America's working poor, was supported by the vast majority of Congress and was nevertheless vetoed by a US president? And the excuse that that US president used was that the bill would negatively affect Chinese billionaires. And I don't mean that the official excuse was that it would negatively affect Chinese trade relations or some sort of, you know, BS excuse and abstract excuse like that. No, it was vetoed explicitly because it would negatively affect Chinese billionaires. It's essentially impossible to imagine. Louis XVI might have been trying to do what he thought was ethically right in his own eyes. He was, after all, protecting the very property rights which were enshrined in the Declaration of the Rights of Man. But what he was doing, well, from a political perspective, it was complete and utter stupidity. And to make matters worse, the political stupidity of the king was soon mirrored by his troops. But we'll get to the mess the armed forces create in a second. Before we talk about the army, other hallmarks of conspiracy could be found besides just what was occurring on the political front. They could be found on the economic front too. Back in July, the Comte d'Artois and other noble families immigrated from France. Believing the revolution had gone too far, these traitorous émigrés were now resolute on opposing the revolution from a safe distance. By late September, what had begun as a trickle of departing nobles had morphed into a steady stream of aristocratic families. Unfortunately for the French economy, these families took their fortunes with them. 
200,000 passports had been applied for since July, which was like a period of about 10 weeks. And this exodus had meaningful economic consequences. Luxury industries in the cities were particularly hit hard, and the diminishing population of those noblesse families thus put everyone from tailors to shoemakers, carriage drivers to wig makers out of work. According to historian George Lefebvre, the unemployment rate had never been so great. To make matters worse, the quarterly term, or the quarterly settlement of debts, was fast approaching in the first week of October. Just as it had preceded the storming of the Bastille in July, the term would make the people's hardship even more pronounced, and at a key moment too. A moment when the populace was again increasingly convinced of plots, coups and sedition. In addition to the evaporation of work for those in specialist trades, food remained scarce for the entire population. Almost every great event in the French Revolution is accompanied by food scarcity, and the chaos of the October days is no different. As before, steep prices were blamed on speculators hoarding grain, which, when coupled with the belief that the counter-revolution was about to strike, spelt a recipe for trouble. The conviction that the elites were responsible for this suffering was even more believable in October than it had been in July. Since July, France had enjoyed a great harvest. No disease had riddled the crops, no hailstorms had destroyed the fields. So when the harvest was plentiful, and yet food supply was still woefully inadequate, the obvious answer was, you guessed it, noble conspiracy. As Marat declared on the 16th of September, Today the horrors of scarcity have been felt again. The shops of the bakers are besieged, the people lack bread, and it is after the richest harvest, in the midst of abundance, that we are about to perish with hunger. Can we doubt that we are surrounded by traitors who seek to consummate our ruin? It would be the rage of public enemies, to the greed of the monopolists, to the incompetence or infidelity of the administrators, that we owe this calamity. I'll introduce the author of that passionate accusation, Jean-Paul Marat, momentarily. I want to focus first on reality. In reality, it was not the conspiracy of nobles, speculators or monopolists which starved the people of Paris. It was instead not enough rain and not enough wind. Without the right weather conditions, the mills which processed grain into flour couldn't function. Unable to turn grain into flour, the successful harvest did very little to successfully increase the supply of bread. Reality is a fickle thing, however. For humanity, truth is often subjective, not objective. A more convenient truth was plastered on every radical journal in town. Noble conspiracy. Speculators. Monopolists. And that was the truth that many preferred to believe. And I mean, can you really blame them for believing a convenient fallacy over an inconvenient truth? You just have to look at Western politics today to see people indulging in those same kind of fantasies. The final log to be put on the revolutionary bonfire just waiting for a match, if not the spark itself, was delivered to us by the army. I promised that the army would do something incredibly stupid. And well, here it is. By late September, the Flanders Regiment had arrived in Versailles from the frontier. Officially, the regiment was there to ensure the safety of the King and the National Assembly. 
Unofficially, many suspected the regiment would be used to ferry the king away from Versailles, protecting his majesty as he escaped the powerful orbit of Paris. Once the king had escaped, the forces of counter-revolution would lay waste to the city. Just as the presence of foreign troops had played a role in setting off the events of July, so they would again in October. It was a tradition that newly arrived regiments would be welcomed to Versailles with an elaborate feast. Despite the hunger of Paris, the tense political environment and the deteriorating economic downturn, the court couldn't see a reason not to uphold the tradition. So, on October the 1st, 1,050 men of the Flanders Regiment indulged in their great welcoming feast alongside the royal bodyguard and members of the court, including the royal family themselves. But, as the alcohol flowed and the night wore on, this tradition became a travesty for the Crown's PR department. At some point in the night, ladies of the court began to distribute white cockades to the troops, a sign of support for His Majesty the King. They also distributed black cockades, a sign of support for Her Majesty the Queen. With wine in their bellies, the soldiers gathered in the Hall of the Opera promptly removed their white, blue and red revolutionary cockades in favour of their newly acquired black or white royalist ones. With the revolutionary cockades removed, royalist songs were played by the band, and reportedly harsh words were spoken by some of the soldiers about the National Assembly. As this heretical party dragged on, soldiers heaped praise upon the king and the royal family. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what happens when news of this reaches Paris. Hungry Paris, unemployed Paris, frightened Paris. Needless to say, the reports and rumours of the feast were greeted with anger and alarm. Before long, the feast was portrayed as a lavish orgy, orchestrated by the Austrian whore Marie Antoinette, and yet further proof that the court was knee-deep in counter-revolutionary conspiracy and unjustified indulgence. Most shockingly, it was rumoured that the troops had stamped on their revolutionary cockades. The press and radical agitators were outraged. How outraged? Well, according to Camille Desmarais, Marat alone made as much noise as the four trumpets of the Day of Judgment. Whipped up into a frenzy, the radical press called for the king to be removed from the corrupting temptations of Versailles and brought to Paris. Only with the king secured by trustworthy Parisians could the plots of counter-revolution be extinguished and the mouths of the hungry fed. Historian Heinrich von Siepel notes the fallout in Paris, the cries of the radical press, and the perils one found themselves in should they be caught wearing a royalist black or white cockade in the streets of Paris. The report was industriously spread among the people that the banquet had been a sumptuous orgy, that the officers had torn the tricolour from their hats and other lies of the same kind. All the fears of an impending counter-revolution seemed now confirmed. The ferment spread among the people, and the life of a man who wore a cockade of one colour was no longer safe. Needless to say, the banquet on the 1st of October had created a huge mess for the Crown's public relations department. If, and this is a big if, the court had any political tact, they should have known that this would have happened. Even if the soldiers hadn't trampled on revolutionary cockades, 
as some of the rumours suggested, hosting such a gathering with Paris on the brink of revolt was a recipe for disaster. It was, to be completely frank, the height of stupidity, and once again demonstrates the political tenure of the court. Then again, this is the same court blocking the abolition of privileges because it was a little bit unfair to some German princes. I mean, since when do the French ever, ever, ever care what the Germans think? I was going to say what the Germans feel, but that doesn't make sense because we all know that Germans don't feel anything but schadenfreunde, but I digress. The point is, is that no one outside the court cared that some German princes might have felt a little bit aggrieved by the French Revolution. And in fact, inside the court, what they should have been caring about was what the French felt about the French Revolution. After news of the banquet of the Flanders Regiment hit Paris, many in the city felt enraged. To give you a flavour of just how near eruption Paris was before, and I stress before news of the scandalous banquet hit the city, here is a radical pamphlet from the 2nd of October calling for the purging of the Hotel de Ville, aka the city government. What is the remedy? Sweep from the Hotel de Ville all suspicious men, royal pensioners, prosecutors, advocates, academians, advisers of the chalet, court clerks of the judiciary and parlement, financiers, speculators and stock exchange sharks, with the bureau at their head. That pamphlet was produced by Jean-Paul Morat. So, having mentioned him several times already this episode, let's formally introduce one of the more infamous characters of the French Revolution. Aged 46 at the time of the October days, Marat was a former physician who quit his medical pursuits in favour of a scientific career. Eventually becoming convinced his science refuted the ideas of Sir Isaac Newton, unsurprisingly, his scientific career didn't get too far. But the budding scientist had also written a number of political works during his time in London in the 1770s. And thus, while on the fringes of the scientific community, Marat had gravitated towards championing the needs of the Third Estate while writing these political works. By October, he used his newly created journal, La Mar du Pipole, to call for radical changes. Changes which could be achieved through insurrection. But for now, Marat is not important. It's the idea of insurrection that he and other key journalists, other key agitators, were propagating that I really want to focus on. The notion that the popular revolt of July must be repeated was already prominent before, and I stress before, news of the Flanders Regiment's supposed traitorous cockey-stamping debaucherous dinner came to be known. In fact, there had already been a range of attempts by radical Parisians to orchestrate a march on Versailles. The whole reason why the Flanders Regiment was brought to Versailles in the first place was to prevent such a march from succeeding. So, as the stories of counter-revolutionary plots and sinister royal banquets swirled through the streets of Paris in early October, so too did the calls for action. The spark had been provided, and Paris had begun to erupt once more. The press may have lost the debate over the royal veto. But thanks to its warnings of conspiracy in the following weeks, it was about to win the royal person instead. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Before we dive into the October days and the march of the market women, I do just want to point out an interesting aspect of grey history. The revolt that we're about to discuss was essentially triggered by the Flanders Regiment and its supposed counter-revolutionary loyalties. So, wouldn't it be interesting if that regiment, when sober, was actually supportive of the revolution? In a weird twist of history, the Flanders Regiment was commanded by the Marquis de Lusignan. Marquis de Lusignan was a member of the National Assembly and actually sat amongst the progressive deputies. Furthermore, the Flanders Regiment had actually been requested to Versailles by the local revolutionary government. Why? Because the local revolutionary government was fearful of intrusions from Paris after the events of the Bastille and calls from radical agitators to forcibly move the king to Paris. On top of that, the regiment was placed under the command of the local National Guard. In other words, this counter-revolutionary regiment was led by a staunch revolutionary, was only in Versailles due to the request of revolutionaries, and didn't resist being subordinated to revolutionaries, specifically a revolutionary militia. Quite remarkable, then, that the rumoured actions of this supposed counter-revolutionary regiment would trigger one of the most important revolutionary actions of 1789. Monday the 5th of October, 1789. As the sun rose over the city, a handful of members of the city militia, the National Guard, were on watch at the Hotel de Ville, the town hall of Paris. Perhaps smoking some tobacco, perhaps discussing the political events of recent weeks, the Sentinels could hardly have imagined what the day had in store for them. That is, until they heard the drums. Then... All too aware of the radical press's calls to purge the Hotel de Ville, I'm sure they started to imagine things far worse than what the day actually would have in store for them. Earlier that morning, the toxin had begun to sound in the St. Marguerite Church to signal a wider insurrection. In the central markets and public gardens, huge crowds of women had gathered to demand bread. Convening on the Hotel de Ville to the sound of a beating drum, these women some six or seven thousand of them, had one very simple question. When will we have bread? This question was the title of a new pamphlet which ascribed the cause of food shortages to noble conspiracy, and the women chanted these words in chorus. When will we have bread? 
Who were these women who wanted bread? They were the fishwives of Paris, the market stall holders, the fruit sellers, the prostitutes, an assortment of downtrodden working women of the city. Some of them, however, were also the well-dressed women of the bourgeoisie. Principally concerned with obtaining bread, the women also demanded the royal bodyguard be punished for their affront against the nation. The trampling of the revolutionary cockade was disgraceful, and so was the pro-monarchy sentiment it had whipped up in Paris. Throughout the city, white and black cockades had appeared in support of the monarchs since the Flanders regiment had donned them themselves. Upon arriving at the Hotel de Ville, the crowd overcame the National Guardsmen stationed at the city hall to acquire, amongst other things, several hundred muskets, an assortment of melee weapons and some cannons. At this point, the gathered ladies weren't really sure what to do next. They contemplated sacking the town hall and the accompanying neighbourhood. Instead, they took Stanola Maya as their leader. A hero of the Bastille, Maya promised that he would lead them to Versailles, where they could lobby both the king and the assembly for bread and justice. And so, the crowd, joined now by many men and volunteers who had attended involuntarily, set off in torrential rain towards Versailles. In total, the crowd had swelled to some 30,000 people. Armed with everything from pikes to muskets, meat cleavers to cannon, the horde began their long and muddy march to Versailles. The October days, as we know them by, were well and truly underway. Arriving at about 5pm, the crowd was greeted in a friendly manner by the National Guard of Versailles. However, try as they might, it was clear that they would not be permitted to enter the palace. The National Assembly was a different kettle of fish, however. Guarded to a far lesser extent, the women of Paris stormed their way into the Assembly as it was still in session. Soaking wet, covered in mud, and still armed to the teeth with clubs, knives, swords, pikes and muskets, women began to sit down next to the deputies and interact with the nation's representatives. Others took positions up in the galleries to watch the commotion below. Occupying the chamber for hours, it was a scene of utter commotion. Profanity filled the air as deputies tried to restore order. Those deputies deemed to be counter-revolutionary were openly threatened and harassed. The galleries screamed, roared, cheered or hissed depending on which deputy was trying to talk. All of this happened while the impromptu leader of the march, Stanila Meyer, referenced the pamphlet When Will We Have Bread, as evidence the assembly wasn't doing enough to prevent a conspiracy from hurting the common people. Finally, Meunier, president of the National Assembly, agreed to lead a delegation of women to speak to the king himself, clearly the only way to calm the whole situation down. The king had been out hunting before word got to his majesty that a large crowd of armed, angry and starving commoners was on its way to Paris. Having returned to Versailles, his council of ministers advised flight, and so too did the Queen. Only Necker suggested the king remain in place. Unfortunately for King Louis, he listened to Necker. Muttering the words, a fugitive king, Louis simply couldn't have done what needed to be done. Deciding to stay, Louis eventually received the deputation of women brought by Meunier, Louis pacified the delegation by ordering all the grain near Paris to be taken to the city immediately, and that the bread in Versailles would be distributed to the women who had just arrived. 
While some in the crowd were not initially pleased with their delegation's reports, a signed declaration was enough to pacify the crowd. To solidify his position and further defuse the situation, later in the evening, the king went on to accept both the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Abolition of Privileges. The king had escaped an ugly situation. Or so he thought. Back in Paris, the departure of a horde of market women hadn't really calmed things down a whole lot. When Lafayette, the commander of the National Guard, finally made it to the Hotel de Ville at about 11am, the scene wasn't exactly what he was hoping for. On the plus side, 15,000 National Guardsmen had gathered at the recently ransacked town hall. On the downside, his men were intent on marching to Versailles. While support for the women might have been a motivating factor for some, selfishness was the prime motivating factor for others. Many members of the National Guard had been members of the French Guards prior to deserting during the revolt of mid-July. Jealous of the royal banquets and prestige enjoyed by the official royal bodyguard, these men sought to supplant themselves on the grounds of disloyalty to the assembly of the current guardsmen. Of course, installed as the king's bodyguard, these men would conveniently reap the reward of being the king's bodyguard at the same time. Despite Lafayette's best efforts to persuade his men not to march on Versailles, it was clear to Lafayette that his men were prepared to mutiny. Even worse, they might even be prepared to murder as well. Had Lafayette not led his own troops to Versailles, it's quite possible he could have been killed by them. Governor Maurice, a founding father of the American Revolution, recorded the situation in his diary. Lafayette has marched by compulsion, guarded by his own troops, who suspect and threaten him. Dreadful situation. Obliged to do what he abhors, or suffer an ignominious death, with the certainty that the sacrifice of his life will not prevent the mischief. As such, the great champion of the American War, the hero of two worlds, the commander of the National Guard, was now a prisoner of his own troops. They reportedly yelled, Versailles or the lamppost! And he chose Versailles. Keen to protect the image that the National Guard resembled order, the commander waited until the city government gave him authority to march on Versailles. Having received permission to leave, the commander set off leading his troops on a white horse, a fitting colour for a man who had surrendered his authority. Concerned for the safety of the assembly and the king, Lafayette sent a rider to warn Versailles of the Parisian army marching upon it. Accounting for armed civilians joining the group, Lafayette was leading a force of more than 20,000 to the epicentre of French government. Once again, Louis' ministers advised flight, including this time Mignet, the president of the National Assembly. Once again, the king made a dignified, courageous, but ultimately foolish decision. Despite initially agreeing to flee, and despite some ministers having already packed up and left, Louis changed his mind and stayed put in Versailles. The king, believing all was well because he had signed the August declarations and ordered the distribution of bread, could not foresee the request Lafayette would press upon him. Lafayette arrived at Versailles just before midnight. 
assuring the assembly his guardsmen represented no harm, the commander went to see the king. Whispers of the word Cromwell could be heard by those in the palace as he made his way to the monarch. Lafayette snapped back. Cromwell would not have come unarmed. Like Necker, who was labelled Cromwell before him by royalists at court, Lafayette's requests were not on par with that of the English Kingslayer. The first two requests were consented to by the king immediately. The king would guarantee food for Paris, and agreed to replace his royal bodyguard with the French guards. The third request, however, the king only promised to consider. Relocating to Paris was no small ask. Content with the king's consideration, and conscious that the hour was late, Lafayette retired for the night. So too did the king, who must have gone to bed pondering his potential relocation to the capital, having only hours before been attempting to escape the capital's residence. Exhausted, the two men would presumably have been relieved to have gotten some sleep after such an eventful day. The queen, however, did not enjoy her rest. Her Majesty Marie Antoinette awoke to a nightmare. A real-life nightmare. At roughly 5.30 in the morning on October the 6th, an armed group from the crowd successfully infiltrated the palace grounds. Making their way into the royal apartments, they were fired upon by a guard who discovered their intrusion. Enraged, the gang not only killed him, but any other member of the royal bodyguard they could find. Save the queen! They are going to kill her! yelled one guard, which was enough to alert Her Majesty of the impending danger. Running barefoot in the palace, the queen sprinted for her life. Slippers in hand and tears running down her face, the chase was on. Those in pursuit yelled that they were after the Austrian whore, that they would tear her heart out, fry her liver, defile her body in all manners, for that was a just fate for the Austrian bitch. Upon finding her bedchamber empty, the mob tore her bed to pieces with swords and axes. The queen and her ladies were meanwhile running through the palace, yelling for assistance. Attempting to slow their pursuers, the party locked the doors behind them as they made their way to the king's chamber. Unfortunately, once they arrived at the king's chamber, they discovered the doors were locked. The king had gone to find the children, and the queen was now trapped between a locked door and a bloodthirsty mob. Fortunately for Marie Antoinette, said mob was intermediately distracted by unfortunate bodyguards who were also outnumbered and retreating. After banging frantically on the door for several minutes, screaming for help, the king's chambers opened and the royal family was reunited once more. National guardsmen rushed in to protect the family and the queen had managed to keep her life. For now. Some of her bodyguards were less fortunate, and their heads were paraded on pikes to remind her of what could have been. Meanwhile, Lafayette had been woken from his sleep, and upon hearing the news, ran to the palace without waiting for his horse. En route to the palace, Lafayette managed to save the lives of several palace bodyguards who were about to be lynched by the mob. The commander of the National Guard eventually reached His Majesty the King. The royal family was secure, but the situation was not. To calm the mob down, which was still being cleared from the palace grounds, Lafayette and the king stood upon a balcony to address the people gathered below. 
seeking to calm the masses, Louis conceded to Lafayette's third request. Louis declared that he would relocate to Paris. With that declaration, Louis's safety was temporarily secured, but his chains were permanently attached. Never again would Louis XVI be a free man. The king was now a prisoner to his own people. By the end of the day, in a procession of some 60,000 people, the king returned to Paris. The women of the markets had brought back to Paris the baker, the baker's wife, and the baker's boy. The impact of bringing the baker to Paris is hard to overstate. Henceforth, the king and the queen were the prisoners of Paris. In their prison, the monarchs finally embraced the counter-revolutionary conspiracies they had for so long been accused of fostering. From this point on, France was on the road to civil and revolutionary war. The royal family, however, weren't the only new prisoners of the capital. The National Assembly would move in the following days to Paris as well, and with the capital now controlling both the legislature, the executive and the judiciary, the entire government could be held hostage by the popular will of Paris. Just as the women of the markets broke into the National Assembly in Versailles to have their voices heard, the people of Paris increasingly felt empowered and authorised to intimidate the Assembly whenever they saw fit. When the Dauphin, the heir to the throne, walked into his new room in the Tuileries Palace, he said to the Queen, It's very ugly here, mother. The four-year-old could not have known just how ugly the future would be, or how accurately he foreshadowed the ugly fate which awaited the French monarchy. Yet, for those with little sympathy for the monarchy, the October days were a great success. A turning point, a milestone, a victory for the common people. In the words of historian Peter Kruipkin, The great monarchy of Versailles had come to an end. For the future, there would be citizen kings, or emperors who attained their throne by fraud. But the reign of the kings by the grace of God was gone. Once more, as on July 14, the people, by solidarity and by their actions, had paralysed the plots of the court and dealt a heavy blow at the old regime. The revolution was making a great leap forward. It is hard to argue with that summary. The revolution was indeed making a great leap forward, and the power of the monarchy and the nobility would continue to decline. But there is a line in Kruipkin's passage that I would like to focus on. He references the plots of the court, which is interesting because before we wind up, I want to discuss another kind of plot. And it's here that we get into some very murky and very juicy grey history. Everything I have told you thus far is the official history of the October days. There is, however, a minority of historians who would question the truth of this official history. You see, I have stated that the cause of this popular revolt was a multitude of political and economic factors that spontaneously erupted after news of the Flanders Regiment's scandalous banquet hit Paris. The unemployment rate, the scarcity of bread, the radical press, the belief in a noble conspiracy, these were all factors at play. But what if the days of the 5th and 6th of October weren't spontaneous at all? What if they were themselves the conspiracy? 
Not a conspiracy of the counter-revolutionary nobility, but a conspiracy of the revolutionary nobility. Tin foil hats please everyone because this one's a doozy and there's plenty of evidence to suggest that it just might be true. The highly respected historian George Lefebvre is one historian who doubts the official recount of the October days. Regarding the gathering of women on the morning of the 5th of October, Lefebvre declares, This could not have been a matter of chance, but we have no knowledge of previous preparations. The lack of solid evidence doesn't stop him from theorising what could have happened. Lefebvre's theories focus on the king's cousin, the Duc d'Orléans. The Duke was incredibly popular amongst the Third Estate and was more progressive than the royal family. A member of the National Assembly, the Duke was well-financed. In fact, he was one of the richest men in France. He was also well-connected and wielded reasonable influence within the Assembly and outside of it as well. Enough influence that rumours had swirled for months that some revolutionaries sought to replace the reactionary Louis XVI with the revolutionary Duc d'Orléans. According to some historians, the October Days was a conspiracy which sought to do exactly that, to dethrone King Louis XVI and install the Duc d'Orléans in his place. Historian George Lavera implicates leading revolutionary figures in the plot. Neither the circumstances nor the terms are known, but it is possible that some sort of agreement between Parisian revolutionaries and patriot deputies was concluded. Probably, too, Mirabeau entered the game on behalf of the Duc d'Orléans. Regardless of what Lafayette said, it seems that neither him nor Bailly disapproved of the plan, for they did nothing to stop it. Now, I'm going to get to Mirabeau and Lafayette shortly, because their loyalties are debated. But historian Georges Lavera isn't the only one to be drinking from this particular brand of conspiracy Kool-Aid. In fact, a considerable number of theories that repudiate the mainstream version of events point to the fact that the Duc d'Orléans was hoping to supplant his cousin, King Louis, and install himself on the throne at the head of a popular revolution. A popular revolution which embraced liberal constitutional monarchy. Historian Christopher Hibbert notes that the Marquis de Ferrer wrote that the Duc d'Orléans walked amongst the crowd outside Versailles staring trouble and had paid men to dress as women and direct the crowd's anger towards the Queen and Lafayette. One British observer wrote that it was generally believed that the Duke was disguised as a woman and headed those women who broke into the Queen's apartment from which she so happily escaped in time. Historian Jonathan Israel notes that many women in the crowd supported the very popular Duc d'Orléans, and evidence from an inquiry held by the National Assembly into the origins of the October Days heard even more damning evidence. Witnesses reported not only seeing the Duc d'Orléans walking amongst the crowd, but giving them directions to the Queen's bedchambers. Aiding the Duke was supposedly the people's champion, the Comte de Mirabeau. It was reported that Mirabeau too walked amongst the crowd in disguise and even tried to get the Flanders Regiment to defect. Multiple witnesses also recorded Mirabeau's support for the Duke dating back several months prior to the revolt. And the two were believed to be, by some, working together to install a new regime based on constitutional monarchy. 
Unsurprisingly, it was believed Mirabeau would become a powerful minister in this new Orleanist regime. But the Duc d'Orléans is not the only high-profile noble who gets to be the centre of a revolutionary noble conspiracy. Lafayette gets his own as well. Historian George Lavrevre indicates that Lafayette did not move to stop Orléans' schemes. But that doesn't mean that the two of them were working together. Some historians believe that Lafayette sought to empower himself and consolidate his preeminent role amongst the revolutionaries of 1789 by becoming the captor of the king. Supposedly, Lafayette sought to relocate the king to Paris and place the king under the protection of his own troops. Essentially controlling the royal person, Lafayette would become even more powerful. So, just to make grey history even more grey, there is multiple competing conspiracy theories as to what really prompted thousands of market women, in fact tens of thousands of market women, to march on Versailles in torrential rain on October the 5th. After the insurrection, supporters of Lafayette and Orléans heaped blame on the other. The Orléanists blamed Lafayette's incompetency for the debacle that was the October days, and accused Lafayette's attacks on the Duke as being nothing but a distraction. Meanwhile, some of Lafayette's biggest supporters championed the inquiry into the Orléanist conspiracy, and Lafayette pressured the Duke to leave the country in the aftermath of the event. With both Orléans and Mirabeau having solid alibis, nothing came from the Assembly's official inquiry, although many contemporaries remained convinced of the Duke's guilt. Of course, the opinions of these historians who advocate an alternative version of history are vehemently refuted by others. Historian Hilaire Bellick rebuts the idea of conspiracy succinctly. The failure of the harvest to relieve the scarcity of bread in Paris, the permanent state of alarm in which Paris had remained, and the suspicion for the safety of the parliament, which it continually entertained since the early part of the summer, needed no more to provoke an outbreak. It is an error to imagine that the outbreak was engineered or that such a movement could have been factitious. Historian Francois Mignet goes further. The insurrection of the 5th and 6th of October was an entirely popular movement. We must not try to explain it by secret motives, nor attribute it to concealed ambition. It was provoked by the imprudence of the court. The banquet of the royal troops, the reports of flight, the dread of civil war, and the scarcity of provisions alone brought Paris upon Versailles. If special instigators, which the most careful inquiries have still left doubtful, contributed to produce this movement, they did not change either its direction or its object. The result of this event was the destruction of the ancient regime of the court. It deprived it of its guard. It removed it from the royal residence at Versailles to the capital of the revolution, and placed it under the surveillance of the people. I must admit, the evidence and accusations presented by some historians in favour of these alternate histories can be lacking. However, so too is Mignet's explanation of how so many thousands of women just spontaneously decided to gather and march on the Hotel de Ville on October the 5th. In my own view, I think it's entirely possible Orléans was orchestrating sinister plots. But that doesn't mean he instigated the October days. I also think it's entirely plausible Lafayette saw the personal advantages which could be gained from the 5th and 6th of October and seized them under the guise of protecting the king and restoring stability. But again, 
he might have just been making the best of a bad situation. He may not have created that situation. Could radical deputies in the assembly have been in cahoots with the Parisian agitators to create the so-called spontaneous march of the market women and force the king and assembly to Paris? I don't see why not. There is a whole range of possibilities here, and the evidence, or lack thereof, allows you to choose your own history. The evidence for all sides of this debate is lacking. A non-insignificant minority of historians cannot definitively prove that the Duc d'Orléans or Lafayette or more radical deputies were up to no good and orchestrated the October days. Likewise, however, the more mainstream school of thought has difficulty proving beyond any reasonable doubt what caused such a large number of women to supposedly, impulsively, gather and march on Versailles. We'll never know what truly caused the October days. And to be honest, that's the way I like it. History isn't meant to be black and white. Thank you for listening to episode 15, The October Days. With the king now the prisoner of Paris, the permanency of the National Assembly was once more secured. The violence of the October Days, however, brought questions of legitimate expression to the foreground of public debate. Debates around martial law and active versus passive citizens would now engulf the Assembly. The outcome of those debates would poison the longevity of the Revolution of 1789. Now before you go, if you have any questions or queries about this episode or others, please send them through to either greyhistory.com or our Facebook page. Also, as always, if you've enjoyed the show, please do tell someone you think would appreciate a podcast which explores the ambiguities of history. I need your help, and so if you know someone who you think enjoys the fact that history isn't black and white, please do tell them about grey history. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.